Yeah, you know what a good thing to do is, by the way, for you that are still here, uh, just to read through, like, theology books, just to have a goal, not to read through it, like, by, you know, the end of the month, but a good goal, Dave, I was telling them, is to get a good theology book, systematic theology, or whatever theology book you want to read, and uh, that's, you know, good, and just read through it from the beginning and read 10 pages a day or something, take your sweet time, and take a year or two, and read through it, and it's always keeping, it, it helps you to understand theology better, keeps it in front of you, and keeps it in your mind and all that, you know. John, uh, John Piper had a, a great idea. Of, he wrote a book called Brethren, We Are Not Profe Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, or as I title it, Bros, We Are Not Pros. And uh, one of the things he said in there was to read, uh, you know, books. He's talking about theology books, type books or whatever. But spend 20 minutes a day, just 20 minutes a day reading through a book like that, theology, good, good stuff, and, uh, and and eventually doing that, you're going to get through the book. If it takes you three months, guess what? You were you read through that book, or four months, or six months, whatever it takes, and you read through some. You can read through some really good books in the course of a year. You can read through a lot of them. If it's 300 pages long. You can read through a lot of books a lot quicker than that, you know. So uh, anyway, that's just an idea. All right, we talked about we're talking about the human constitution. Do you see? You guys all have the notes here. You can, and we talked about the the parts like conscience, and we talked about uh, heart and uh, soul and spirit and all that last time, and we talked about gender. Roman numeral two. We talked about gender last time. You see that? There's how many genders in the world that God created? <laughs> two, right? Man and woman. Now you, you might think this is well. This is really basic. Why are we going over this stuff? Well, first of all, this is part of anthropology. And secondly, you see how what happens if you, I know you people know this, but you see what happens when you don't go over stuff like this and what happens in the church even, what happens to Christians? They have no idea what's going on. And, and so somebody comes along and says, some political agenda comes along and says, hey, we need to have transgenders and, and it's okay to be gay and have gay marriage. And the Supreme Court decides to pass a law that says let's have gay marriages, that's fine. And where do we stand on this stuff? And most people, a lot of Christians don't even know. Uh, how about if you just read Genesis, for example? You know? Throw them out right now. No, everybody's welcome to come to church and hear the truth. They're, they're not all going to be happy with what we have to say, you know? You, you, you preach the truth in love, too. You don't, we're not arrogant about what we're doing. But what I'm saying is, Christians need to learn the, every little detail about the Bible, even two genders, man and woman, yes. Why is that a big deal? Well, look what's happening now, you know. People don't seem to know how many genders there are. Okay, next point, Roman numeral three, homosexuality. This is all implications of the study of anthropology, right? Study of man and the Bible, mankind. So, and uh, let me tell you this, whatever God institutes, in, in scripture, people soon will soon corrupt. What name name some of the big institutions that God established in life from the scriptures? What what comes to your mind? He instituted marriage, instituted the ballroom, church, <laughs> instituted government, and so all these three all these things. <clears throat> what do people do? They seek to corrupt every one of them every time. Every time. And so God established that men and women marry, right? And yet, same-sex relationships have been going on since the beginning of time. This is nothing new. If people think, well, this is something that just started, you know, 10 years ago. No, it's been around since the beginning. And, uh, you know, um, of course, today, homosexuality is considered sacred, you know, almost a badge of honor, something that you can't touch. But let's face it, anybody with any shred of common sense knows this is totally unnatural. That's just how it is. All right, Jimmy, did you get last week's notes? There you go. Okay, great. This is, we're all still, still on last week's notes. And what we did, we, we talked, we're talking about the human constitution, what makes up a person, his soul, spirit, heart. We talked about it last week. Now, if you, if you, once you get settled down there, once you, if you get into your notes, to Roman numeral two is gender, but we're on Roman numeral three right now, homosexuality. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, homosexuality, Genesis 19, what does Genesis 19 talk about? Yeah, Sodom, Sodomites, right? You see the 
Genesis, the people, the guys in Genesis 19, they're, they're presented as homosexuals, right? So early, that early in history, you see it coming out. Nothing coming out of the closet <laughs> that early in history, right, in Genesis. So this is not anything new. Uh, I think I have these in your notes. In Leviticus 18.22, uh, uh, it says, you shall, not, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. Very clear, very plain. There's no doubt about it at all. Leviticus 20.13, which I don't have in your notes. Leviticus 20.13 uh, says it calls homosexuality a detestable act. Now, that doesn't fly with our society, right? Leviticus 20.13, a detestable act. And guess what's called for there? Death penalty. Homosexuality brings about death penalty. If I'm not mistaken, I, I, I'm, I'm sure of this. Uh, one time in our history, homosexuality was a major crime. Yes, yeah, sodomy. And I don't know what the penalty was. At one time it may have been death penalty. I don't know what the penalty was in time as time went on. Okay. So it was a crime and uh, punishable by, uh, as a crime. And, uh, and so, I mean, where did that come from? Well, the scriptures teach it was a death penalty back in the day, okay? Uh, Judges 19, you know what happened in Judges 19? You remember that? That reminds us of another chapter. What happened in Judges 19? So that was so drastic or bad. You can, you, and it reminds us of another chapter earlier in the Bible. It's very similar. Was that when the men surrounded yeah. the house? Uh, one five, maybe the Danites. Yeah. That's right. That that tribe. The Benjamites, the Benjamites, they they tra they went to Lib uh, Gibeah. This, this, the traveling Levi went to Gibeah with his concubine, and uh, the, they they were Benjamites, and they surrounded the house and they tried to get the man homosexuality. It's a bad story and uh, it's a true story and it reminds Judges 19 reminds us of an, and connect this in your mind with another chapter, Genesis 19, Judges 19, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. And so they did the same thing, a uh, similar thing. Look at uh, somebody, let's look up Romans 1.21. And uh, well, we'll go here first. I know you, you're aware of this passage. Oh, by the way, the readings, let me give you this while you're turning there. Romans 1. Uh, did you all get all the, did all of you all get the readings for the first week, Genesis 1 and 2 and Psalm 8? What's that? Okay. That was the second week. Okay, let me start. Let me give you this again. The first, the first week. Okay. Genesis chapter one and two, and Psalm eight. Yes, sir. Psalm eight. Second week, Matthew nineteen and Romans one. That's what y'all were reading last week. Romans one. Today, this week, Romans five. Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Romans 5, Genesis chapters 10 and 11. You're just basically reading what the scripture says about these matters, okay, right now, which is 10 and 11. Primary source. Historians call that the primary source. You're reading what the actual source is, okay? Uh, all right, are you guys at Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 21? Okay, for even though they, didn't, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds, four-foot animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies be, would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's their first problem, right? Uh, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And what happens when that happens? Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. So first of all, we start with a total, complete wrong view of God, a total uh, uh, denial of, of the truth of God. And now for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. The word is unnatural, okay? People don't like that word today. The fact of the matter is it doesn't take a... It's scientists to figure out that it is unnatural, right? And in the same way, also the man, the men abandoned the woman, the natural function of the woman, 
and burning their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons, I wonder what that means, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to those things which are not, pro which are not proper. So you can see very clearly now we've come into the New Testament and it's making a big statement uh, against homosexuality and what's behind it all. Look over in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, it could be, uh, Dave, he doesn't, I mean, we don't have that information to specify that that's why he's saying it. But yeah, it could very well because Roman society did practice homosexuality. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. That's a good point. And that could be well, he, why he's bringing it up there. Like, okay. That's right. Yeah. Degradation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither. Now, this is, a long, this is not just one group of people here. It's, it's, it's a list of people. Fornicators aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. These are people who, who live this way. They practice this. Uh, not, not, not people, who, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. So you have the two groups, nor effeminate, nor, or, nor homosexuals, including this, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So, he makes it clear that this whole category, all these different people, not just one category, but homosexuals included in this category are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. However, the good news is that some people in that church are, were saved out of, out of that lifestyle. And that happens today. And so, that, guess what? Homosexuals need a savior like everybody else. So therefore, what's, Dave said, so what do we do if a transgender walked in the church? That was his question before you got here, Jim. And I was kidding about him throwing, I said, just throw him out. I said, no, we, you know, we have compassion towards people, right? We have compassion towards all people, regardless of their, uh, how much they've sinned even in life and so on and so forth. Sometimes we may have to take action if someone's molesting a child. We can't let that go on without turning them over to the proper authorities, you know. We still pray for people and have compassion. I've heard many things that people have told me, even in this church, about all kinds of horrible things going on. Well, we, we have compassion on these people, and we love them, we point them to Christ, Tell them the gospel and all these things, you know. So they need Savior like everybody else. But however, homosexual relationship can never enter into a true biblical marriage. Cannot. Because marriage is defined by God as one man, one woman entering into holy matrimony, right? Not one man and one man, not one, one woman and one woman. Uh, you know, Genesis 1.24, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father, a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, right? Man, wife, woman, man. Not any other way. And the majority of the, of the Supreme Court, what, a couple years ago? Five out of nine, whatever it was. They, they define marriage, uh, uh, you know, they redefine marriage as it's okay to have same-sex marriage. But that reminded me of Romans 1.22 we just read. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Not biblical marriage. That's right. And there's people who are in churches, there's homosexual churches, there's pastors who are that way and they and they defend that. 
well, God loves all of us, and we want to worship God too. We just want to do it in our own way, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you, that's what Scripture basically teaches, and there's other verses. Any other questions or comments about that? Before we move on to personhood, Roman numeral four, personhood. Um, all, all human beings possess dignity. Why do all human beings born on this planet possess dignity? Or do they possess dignity? A lot of people don't seem to think that's the case at all. What's that, Dave? Made in God's image. We talked a lot about that in the first class three, a couple weeks ago. Um, and so because everybody's made in God's image, think about this. Everybody, everybody on the planet from different, all over the world's different cultures, and everything, they're all made in God's image. Therefore, everybody has dignity before God, right? And should have dignity before people. That isn't always the case. Of course, we know that. The question now is when does personhood begin? When did it begin? And that's been the big argument over the years, right? Some think that personhood uh, begins uh, after conception, but before birth. Sometimes after conception and before birth, there's, there's personhood. The, 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 the fetus becomes a person, okay? Uh, Roe versus Wade in 1973 argued that no person is a person until birth. Did you have a question, Jimmy? Or you, okay. They're not a person until they're actually born. And others think that, well, no, you're not a person until about, and, and it's been quoted, until like a year after you're born or so. So the que question is, when do we become a person? Well, it's a scientific fact that, you know, life begins at conception. Oh, I wanted to read this to you. Um, this is interesting. If you ever, if you have, and MacArthur's, uh, and those guys that did this, uh, the guys that put this together and did it, I think it was a, this faculty probably at Master Seminary actually did all this. Page 433 on uh, his book. Listen to this. Scientific fact demonstrates that human life begins at conception when all, this is all the scientific stuff, when all 23 pairs of chromosomes are complete, the fertilized egg contains a fixed genetic structure, DNA. Between days 12 and 28, a heart begins to beat. Blood cells form at day 17. Eyes begin to form at day 19. Between weeks 4 and 6, brain waves can be measured. At one month, the embryo looks like a distinct human person. Fingerprints exist at two months. The skeleton circulatory system and muscular system are completed by the eighth week. The manifestation of personhood appears rapidly after conception, but the, and it starts at conception. So he's, he's talking about the scientific end of it there. But abortionists say that they're not, these people are not, these fetuses are non-persons in the womb. They're non-persons. And, uh, and so they can be aborted. If it's not a person, it's an easy argument from there to say, well, then if it's not a person, we can abort it, right? It's not that you're not doing anything wrong. But the Bible considers babies as persons in the womb. That's the problem, okay? Look at Genesis 25. Look at Genesis 25 and verse 21. Um, these are all the implications of, of uh, the study of anthropology in the Bible. Study mankind, what does it all mean? Well, for one thing, it means that people are people at conception, okay? Nothing less than that. Look at Matthew, or not Matthew, Genesis 25, 21. The Lord said to, I think this is Rebecca, his wife, verse 21, his wife conceived. I'm sorry, look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Why did I do stop here for? Keep going. The Lord said to her, two nations are... No, that's, that's not it. Stop right there. Okay. So you can see she conceived. And then children are struggling in her womb. Okay. <laughs> and, it talks about, and it talks about it like that. So you can see it's taught here that birth, it all begins at conception. I think I'd have Job 3, 3 in your notes. Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, because he's, he's frustrated because he's under this, you know, he's got all this boils and all that. Let the day perish on which I was to be born, the night on which it was said, a man-child is conceived. <laughs> what, what is conceived? Was it a fetus? It's a man-child, right? A person. Now, the people like to use the term fetus the reason, to avoid the term human, okay? A lot of times what they, is what they do with this. Now look at uh, look at uh, in your I've got this quoted in your pages. When Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, Luke one forty one, it says when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, or the non person leaped in her womb. Right, pretty good. 
uh, already starting um, towards a basketball career in the womb, right? Verse 44, Elizabeth says to Mary, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. So that gives indication that there's, there's life there, right? Definitely. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, he says, God says to Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. Uh, look over in Exodus 21. This is interesting. Look at Exodus 21, verse 22. Got this easy listening music in the background. I'm kind of like, not sure if I'm supposed to be teaching or relaxing right now. <laughs> Ephesians, uh, Exodus 21, 22 through 25, a law in the Old Testament. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with a child, this pregnant woman is nearby. Two guys are fighting. If they strike a woman, the child says she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury. He shall surely be fine as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So, you know, death penalty for the person that actually killed the baby in the womb or whatever, then it goes there from there um, by different degrees, right? So abortion is the taking of a life. Therefore, we call it murder. And, of course, the pro-abortion people would disagree with that. Exodus 20:13. You shall not murder, it says in Exodus 20:13. It doesn't matter whether that murder's killing someone outside of the womb or inside the womb. It's still murder. So Planned Parenthood and the organizations like this in the world are going to answer to God for what they're doing. Uh, now, let me ask you a question. What about if a baby is, is prior to birth is tested and they find out they have this debilitating sickness? They have a, some kind of a, a problem. Is it okay to term a serious problem? Is it okay to terminate that life? You find this out. You're going to have a baby, and you have it tested. Oh my goodness, has Down syndrome or whatever. You find out. Is it okay to terminate that life? Well, many nations seem to think it is, including our own, by the way. <laughs> uh, Yeah, well, CBS News had a report on this, uh, and they said, and it was about Iceland, not Sweden, although Sweden's, okay. Yeah, Iceland, uh, they had uh, close to 100% of the pregnant women that they tested um, positive for Down syndrome, they terminated their pregnancies. They, they aborted the babies, right? And, then, and it says, they said about one or two babies a year were like that in Iceland, but they've almost aborted 100% of those since the two, early 2000s. Yeah, you're talking about Elijah, your grandson. Okay, you're right, right, right. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. They ask you that question? Really? Wow. I know about Elijah. Well, I, okay, here's what CBS posted a link, a, a tweet, and they said Iceland is on pace. Here's the quote Iceland is on pace to virtually eliminate Down syndrome through abortion. And this actress, Patricia Heaton, whoever he is, she has said, Iceland isn't actually eliminating Down syndrome. They're just killing everybody that has it. Big difference. <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of, uh, that's true, they're not eliminating the problem of Down syndrome. They're killing people. Yeah, they're eliminating people. And uh, they, uh, other countries, like Dave said, there are European countries, and U.S. Is, is doing the same thing, by the way, not to the degree that Iceland is. But it'd be tough to have a child with Down syndrome. I would, I'll admit to that. Think of the Schnedekers. You know the people that come here every once in a while? they got the wheelchairs? Yeah. Takes them forever to back in the, the big vehicle, and we help them back in, and we help them get out of the vehicle, and it takes forever to get up here with the wheelchair and all this. 
and he's got to be, Kenny gets up here and does sign language right close to his face and all this. Those, you, you know, you talk about sacrificial parents. Those are the parents of not only the year, the lifetime of my book, those guys, because they've lived this way. This has been their life, you know. And, uh, you know, it's not easy. I get it. It's not easy. But what would the Lord have us do is the question. And uh, what, is, what happened in John 9? What does John 9, 1 to 3 say? If somebody can read that to me. John 9, 1 to 3. Yeah, John 9, 1 to 3. Okay, so here's a person born blind. Um, should they have maybe gotten rid of him? So but in this case, God says, hey, I'm, I'm going to glorify myself, and then he heals this man later on. Later, what, is it 38 years later or something like that, 40 years later? He heals the man. It took years for this to happen. And God comes, Christ comes in, and, and the glory of God is seen because of this situation. You don't know what God's doing is the question, is the, is the issue here. And, you know, again, I, I sympathize with parents who have, they have to deal with these things. It's very difficult. I, I see that. And then you got kids making fun of them, and you got adults making fun of people and all this stuff, it's, which is sad, but it's the reality, too. You saw the, you saw the Johnny and Friends video where the kid was in Africa, and he was crawling around the ground, and other kids were making And that's, unfortunately, the cruelty of people. Wicked hearts. Uh, eugenics. Do I have that in your notes? Science of improving a human population. <laughs> Here's how you improve the human population. You do it by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable heritable characteristics. That sounds on the surface like, okay, we want to improve the population. Well, how do we do that? Well, a guy named Francis Galt Galton came up with this idea, and uh, he coined the term eugenics in 1883. It's an old term. And uh, he's a British naturalist. What's, what does that mean? Influenced by who? Who are naturalists influenced by? What did you say, Bob? Yeah, Darwin. When you hear the word naturalist, think Darwin. That's an evolutionist, okay? And uh, he's influenced. he was influenced by Darwin's theory of natural selection. So he comes up with this idea, hey, we can, get, we can improve the race by controlling breeding. This, let me tell you what he said. He advocated a system, and I quote, that would allow the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable. In other words, this guy says, hey, we can get the, the more suitable races to, uh, you know, outdo the less suitable races, the ones we consider less. Who, who's less suitable or more suitable? Depends on who you're talking about. This guy, uh, what's this guy, uh, whatever his name is? Uh, Galton's view, you mean, or somebody else's view that these people are suitable or not suitable. So, so there's a thing called social Darwinism that came about because of Darwin, and it, it talks about the survival of the fittest, you know, only the fittest survive in life. And uh, that movement helped advance eugenics into a more scientific study by the early 1900s. And listen to this. By World War I, here we go with our scientists again, by World War I, many scientific authorities and political leaders supported eugenics. Hey, this is, what have I talked about scientists? You know, we, we worship them as God almost, right? They're, they make mistakes and they, they make decisions that are outright wrong at times, okay? And there's other things they do that are helpful, it depends. Many scientific authorities supported eugenics, but it failed in the 1930s and 40s, why? Who practiced it? Yep, the Nazis. They wanted to exterminate the races they felt were inferior to theirs, they called themselves, what did they call themselves? What did the Germans call themselves? The Nazis, not the Germans. They called themselves the Aryan race, the super Aryan race. We're better than everybody else. We want everybody to be blonde-haired, blue-eyed, like, like the, the, the superior race. 
And, uh, and so Hitler's responsible for exterminating six million Jews and homosexuals and others, by the way. You know what? That is one of the most interesting things to me in history. And I've read about that with uh, that track meet. I was reading a couple books that, had that, that talked about the track meet and how Hitler was there watching it from the stands. Yeah, Jesse Owen won his race and all that. And very interesting. I'm sure he was like about ready to faint in his seat, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I, that's a good question. Where is the protest against it? Everybody glorifies evolution today, and uh, that's what I'm always saying. Where's the protest against it? What about euthanasia or mercy killings? What about that? Painless killing of a patient suffering from some incurable disease or an irreversible coma. What do we do with that? What about this practice I, Alice told me about three weeks ago? I didn't even know this existed until a few weeks ago. She said, well, what they're doing, you know what they're doing now, Mark? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, they're doctors and uh, nurses, I guess, are advocating to people, if you have a loved one who's dying, basically you can give them morphine, she told me, and this is the only source I've heard this from, and uh, you basically starve these people to death, uh, not give them food, but you give them morphine to ease the pain over time, and they die. And, and Sandy said, don't you remember, Mark, we saw a lady like that, that in that situation. I said, what are you talking about? Just recently, me and her visited a lady we knew for years ago. She was laying there dying in her home, literally, not even moving, just like, like that. And they said, well, she hadn't eaten in, I heard she hadn't eaten in like some days or whatever. And I didn't think anything about it. I thought she just wasn't hungry, you know, she's dying. Come to find out that wasn't happening. They were doing this. And I'm like, what? Sally? Ah, there you go. I wanted more feedback on this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what about that? Should we do that? Should Christians do that? Alice was talking about, she was so upset about this, about how that was murder and all. And uh, I said, I, I understand what you're saying. I agree with her, actually. What about getting rid of people that somebody in the world considers less desirable? Well, they just aren't measuring up. This has happened more than once in history, and the Nazis were like the extreme example of it. What about that? Do we, where does it all stop, though? How far do you go with all this? Well, God says that life is sacred, so many words. And to, to God, life is sacred. To the Bible, life is sacred. To evolutionists, life is cheap. See, because evolutionists, they don't, that, they don't care about God or any of this. People just die, and the, the strong survive, you know. It's no big deal to them. So Yeah, right. So these are things you have to think about as, as, a, as a Christian, and as if you, especially if you preach and things like this or whatever you do, counsel with people, you have to think about things like this. Where do, you where do you stand on all these issues? So I'm bringing them up because it's part of anthropology, the implications of, you know, what do we do with these things? So it's stuff for you to think about. Okay, uh, let me give you the next section on this. What's it called? No, I was watching Rocky at the time. So, do you? <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't know. I didn't hear about it, Dave. No, <laughs> didn't hear about it. Uh, all right, death. Is that what your paper says? Yeah. Roman numeral five. We're talking about uh, anthropology still, okay? Death. First of all, general facts about death. Uh, death is a harsh reality because of sin, right? Yeah, we'll all get there one day. It may be today. Hopefully not. Look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Um, <clears throat> the Lord God commanded man, the man saying, from the, Of any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat from it you will surely die. There's the clear promise. He says it's going to happen if you do this thing, and of course they do that, and uh, that's, what's, that's what happened. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. Here's the result of that promise, by the way. 5.5, 5, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he what? He died. 
Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, death through sin, death through sin, death spread to all men, because all sin. That is the biblical explanation for death, right? That's why we die. Now, we know that a death, you know, the body goes to the ground, decays in the ground, uh, Genesis 3.19. But death also involves the separation of spirit from the body. Spirit from the body. Look at James 2.26. This is in your notes, right? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Spirit is, uh, death is separation of the spirit from the body. Uh, everyone in the world has died with the exception of two people. Who are they? <laughs> For ten points, Enoch and Elijah, right? Enoch in Genesis 5, Elijah in 2 Kings 2. But for all others, in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to be born and a time to die, right? And uh, death's finally going to be removed in the eternal state. Revelation 21, 4, there's no more death, it says. Uh, we know that the Bible teaches the Lord is sovereign over death. It's not left to chance. Our death is not left to chance. Death of anyone is not left to chance. We say, we use the word accident. We know what we're talking about. Someone had an accident. But and from our view, that's what happened. But from God's view, <clears throat> he's sovereign over all these things. We don't understand that fully. We couldn't enter into the mind of God fully on these things. 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Job 12, 10, in, in, in God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So death is a reality. God's sovereign over it. That's what the Bible teaches. This is a result of sin. Now, what happens to a person at death? Well, there's, depending on who you ask, there's a lot of views, like unbiblical views, for example. The, the, the one view is uh, we cease to exist, cessation of existence. Um, they, these people that believe this, that we just, that's the end of it. They, they, they don't believe in afterlife. They're, they're atheistic people. Death means a permanent end to your existence. That's the end of it. That's the end of everything. Um, somebody said since consciousness and thoughts are tied only to brain tissue, this is what they believe. Since thoughts and consciousness are tied only to brain tissue, uh, once the human body dies, all consciousness and thoughts totally cease. The body is buried and that is the end. And that's what they think. There's no divine judgment, nothing, no eternal life, no eternal suffering, none of that. Richard Dawkins, the famous evolutionist, says if you're, you're lucky if you lived at all. It's just a roll of the dice. You're, you're lucky. You're among the lucky ones, he says, who, won't win the who won the lottery of birth against all odds. For you to, we're like, uh, just thought of this, <laughs> we're like uh, NFL players who a very small percentage of people play in the NFL, a lot of athletes out there play college football and everything, but very few people make it. Very, very few. So your goal of trying to be in the NFL, you can forget it and go get another job somewhere because you're probably not going to make it. But they're the lucky ones, we could say. On the other hand, they're not so lucky because they get banged up. They're the lucky ones who won the lottery, we could say. And that's how it is with life. If we're living, we're, we're, the, we're the NFL players. We're the, the handful that made it. Okay. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man, men once to die and after this the judgment. So we know that all that cessation we cease to exist isn't true. Some people think, B, that, there's, that the soul continues only. Uh, and, 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 you know, that death, the soul only is immortal. Not the body. The body's temporary. The soul continues, and we know the body dies anyway, but there's no resurrection of the body is what they're saying. Okay? There's no glorified body. None of that. Socrates and Plato both believe that. You guys ever hear of a guy named Henry Emerson Fosdick? Ever hear that name? Back in the, night, in the 20th century, he was a liberal preacher. And I think he was in New York, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, or somewhere. But he had, a, he had a big following, liberal. And he said this, I believe in the persistence of personality through death. I do not believe in the resurrection of the flesh. So he didn't believe that. So some people think that only the soul continues. There's no re reunion of the body and the soul, glorified body in that at all. There's another view, annihilationism. You're annihilated at death. Believers are going to enjoy, you know, being in the presence of God forever, but unbelievers are going to be annihilated. And depending on whose view you take, some people say, some Christians say, um, believers or unbelievers are annihilated at death. Others are punished for a little while in hell, and then they're annihilated. And they take some of these people take the lake of fire as a symbol. You know, uh, only as a symbol of annihilation. 
um, this there's no everlasting punishment or eternal punishment. What what it is is you're not there's no conscious torment in hell forever. Um, one one person said this about this subject. Everlasting death is destruction without end, the destruction of obliteration. So you're obliterated is what he's saying. Strange way for him to say it, but he says says that. The reason they say this, what do you think, what, what's one reason they say this? Combustible, huh? combustible, or yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's her. That was her idea of it. Like if you won't suffer, it'll just be us burning, and that'll be it. There'll be no more. Yeah, and I know Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell, but I don't think they believe in hell at all. It's interesting she would say that. <laughs> but I, I guess so. I'm not sure what they think, but well, according to what? She, oh, okay, okay. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I realize this is not a pleasant subject, you know. This is the most difficult subject for me to think about, hell. I think about this is such a difficult subject, but they say God's like I said God's too loving to, to do this, so there's no way he would do this. Uh but they also like to take verses like, you know, 2 Thessalonians 1:9 there's other verses which says that these you know, these people, these unbelievers, pay the penalty of an eternal destruction. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Okay, and they say, well, that's that teaches that you're destroyed in hell, eternal destruction. But think about the phrase, eternal destruction. You're gonna say you're gonna you're gonna be destroyed eternally. You're gonna be suffer harm eternally. That's the, that's look. If you're if you're burning in hell and yet this is the eternal thing, you're suffering. The whole time you're not getting you know this is now how does that happen i don't know i mean i've read i've heard that okay how do we have a glorified body god gives the believers glorified bodies right In the same token uh obviously he's giving them some kind of a we use the word body whatever that allows them to suffer without being totally destroyed okay and uh you know i was reading uh i think it was exodus one time and it hit me moses at the burning bush and it said, hey, the bush is, is burning, but it's not devoured. And I thought to myself, hell, it just, hit, it just came to my head. You know, I'm not saying that's an illustration necessarily, but it is kind of, you know. It wasn't meant to be, but, you know, if he, God can do that, he can do the same thing with, with uh, bodies. Now, how he does it, and of course, this is a sad subject and a tragic one, you know. Uh, this is why we witness to people, right, and do what we do. Uh, John Stott, you ever heard of John Stott? Recent died he was a big evangelical believed in new you know salvation by faith and all these things and he was in a uh, believed in annihilationism he just thought he that in no he thought people were annihilated at some time at least i don't know exactly what he thought we have some of his books in the library he's got a book on preaching it's actually good two the it's called between two worlds the book for the preaching book how you when you preach you're you're going back to the world of the bible and then you're connecting it to the world today application you know but uh, John Stott, who was a big evangelical guy, a lot of look, people looked up to him, had that view. So it's easier to think that everybody's going to have it okay in life. We, don't, we all like to think everybody's good to go, you know, <laughs> for eternity, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Right, right. Yeah, and it's easier. I think the reason is all of us want that. We all think we want this to be the case, you know. I want everybody to be saved and, uh, and all this, but it's not the case. Uh, D, soul sleep is another one, which teaches that at death, people become unconscious until the resurrection. Kind of like, you ever heard the story of Rip Van, Rip Van Winkle? Yeah. Fell asleep for 20 years and woke up. Some people wish they would sleep for 20 years and wake up, or maybe not wake up. I don't know. Uh, that's how this is. Soul of believers goes to sleep at death rather than going immediately into the presence of the Lord. 
And they, how, where do they get this idea from? Where does this come from? Well, there's verses that talk about look that talk about sleeping at death. Look at John 11, 11. Well, look at these verses. John 11, 11. You remember uh, Lazarus? It says, uh, this he said after that, Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Um, okay. Now, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I, so that I may wake him, waken him out of his sleep. <laughs> Sometimes I like the way Jesus said things, and people were like, What? <laughs> Verse 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. That's a good thing. He needs his rest, right? That's how you get better. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Talking about death when I said that. Uh, what about, look at Acts 760. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Stephen's stoned to death, and uh, verse 60, he, verse 59, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. Did he take a nap at that point? No, he died, right? He was dead. Uh, look at 1 Thessalonians. What does 1 Thessalonians 4.13 say? Anybody remember offhand? Your First Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so you will not grieve as those, the rest who have no hope. Um, and talk, talking about people who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Um, and then it says, then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught together with him. So the contrast is we're alive, they're asleep, in other words, they're dead. So um, it's just a metaphor, sleep, to show a couple things. I think it shows the gentleness with which the, the Christian death is spoken of in the sense that he could be martyred to death, but I'm saying because of the way God looks at it. And also, it's a metaphor to indicate, indicate that death is only temporary, just like sleep is temporary. And he's not talking about sleeping, literally sleeping, as Jesus said in there. And I'm saying he's dead, okay? He's dead. It's just the way that the, the Scripture presents it or talks about it. It never says a soul was an individual is asleep. That's what these people teach, their soul sleeps. It never says that anywhere. And the people that hold this view are Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Seventh-day Adventists hold the view. I thought the, uh, the uh, Christian scientists held that view, but I could be wrong. And a group called the Christadelphians. You ever heard of the Christadelphians? I thought I'd just, since it's part of it, I thought I'd bring it up. Not the Philadelphians, okay? <laughs> Not people from Philly. <laughs> um, Christadelphians, Colossians, they get that from Colossians 1-2, where it says the brethren in Christ. The Greek is Delphoi and Christos. Delphoi is brethren, brothers, brothers in Christos, Christ, brothers in Christ. So uh, Christ the Delphians, okay, is where they get it. But they might be better off called Philadelphians because they teach that salvation is by works. Christ is not God. They're heretics anyway. They hold that view, though, okay? So there's those that hold the view of soul sleep. And then E reincarnation, also called the transmigration of the soul. Uh, at death, the soul of a person inhabits another person or animal. And Hinduism holds this. Others, like some Buddhas, hold this. Uh, all living beings experience the cycle of birth, births and deaths and rebirths again and again and again. You know, you're born, you're, you, uh, you die, you're reborn again and again until you achieve uh, union with the highest reality. That's their goal trying to achieve union with the highest reality. So with Hinduism, the, the union with the highest reality is Brahman, it's called. So you, if you achieve the stage of Brahman, you, you, you made it, okay? However, it's not easy to get there. It's not easy to achieve that. because And so that's why in, in Hinduism, you're reincarnated, most people, thousands of times, again and again and again. Again and again. So it's all about karma. You know, if you act good in this life, then you got good karma going for you. You'll come back as something better than you are now. If you, if you do bad things in this life, you're going to come back as something worse than you are now. And then that cycle continues. Now think about this. If you believe these kind of things, you believe in per, a reincarnation, 
What do you, well, how would you live your life based on what, your belief system about the future? Vegetarian. <laughs> Vegetarian, you're right. And they, they don't eat cows in India, right? Is that, is that the case? Cows are sacred in India, uh, not too sacred in America. <laughs> What's sacred in America is a hamburger and a steak. What's the, or barbecue. What's sacred over there is cows. But think about this. You're annihilated. Uh, you're, you're, you know, reincarnated or whatever. You have all these views. Well, it's going to govern the way you live. Sandy's talked many times about her brother has said, forgive me if I can use this quote, her brother's a doctor, eye specialist, okay? And he, she's, he's talked about certain doctors from other countries, like I think Hindus, right? And he, or was it Hindus or other people, whatever. He says, they have, you have to understand when you go into their care, and I'm not saying you can't go to a Hindu doctor here, okay? But if you go into their care, they don't care about life like you do. Their, whole, their view is affected, of life is affected by their religious belief. So if you're just going to be reincarnated, so what, the guy dies, is that big of a deal, you know? I'm not saying it's that, it's that cavalier of an attitude, but he was talking about Phil, who's met a lot of these people, I guess, says they don't think about it like me and you. Like Phil's out to save lives or save eyes or what he was trying to do, but not necessarily everybody has that same idea. All right, Purgatory F, Roman Catholics, you know that. Purgatory is a place where you, you're there for a while because you're being further purified from sin. Now, if you get to the place to where you're, you're okay, he's made it now, he's suffered enough in purgatory, then you're admitted to heaven. The biggest place they get this teaching from is not in the scripture, exactly. It's in the, it's in the Apocrypha, 2 Maccabees. I wrote the quote there for you. This is kind of hard to understand. This. I'm not going to go into the context here. I don't even know what the context is. I think Judas is, a guy named Judas is fighting, Judas Maccabee maybe, Maccabeus is fighting in a battle. And it says, in making a gathering, he sent 12,000 drums of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. For if he had not hoped that they that were slain, these people that were killed, should rise again, it would have seemed superfluous and vain to pray for the dead. And because he considered that they who had fallen asleep with godliness, they got that right, the godliness falling asleep part, dying, had great grace laid upon them, it is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from their sins. That's where Catholics, that's the number one, my understanding, that's their number one source for the idea of purgatory. Second Maccabees, which they accept as scripture. So if you have a Catholic Bible, you have the extra 14 books and 11, this extra 11 if you're Eastern Orthodox. And the, let's see the video that was making fun of that, talking about uh, the Bible. And it said, if you're Catholic, you get 14 extra books, you know. But that was meant to be a joke. But that's, that's, that's their belief, okay? And they take some other scriptures out of context inside the Bible and say weird things about them that have nothing to do with purgatory whatsoever. So, but what's, what's one of the big problems with purgatory? What's one of the big problems outside of the fact that it came from 2 Maccabees? What's one of the big problems with the idea of purgatory? You go suffer for your sins uh, until you're better off. Uh, wait a minute, let me read this first. Does Sandy like cappuccino? Okay, <laughs> that was my note I just got there. What's that, Dave? <laughs> yeah, what else is a problem? Yeah, how do you know when enough's enough? It's a good question. Is there somebody else that, if you trust in him, he paid for all your sins already? Like Christ? <laughs> and then if that's the case, then why do you got to go suffer for your sins again or more? That's a problem. Yeah. These are all on biblical views. What about biblical views? Okay, let's start with that. A, first of all, the souls of believers go immediately into God's presence. Immediately into God's presence. You know, when, you're, when you die, your body's buried, or if you're lost at sea, um, you're lost at sea. So that's it. But your soul goes immediately into the presence of God, right? 2 Corinthians 5 8, we prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. Telling us what? When we're absent from the body, we're at home with the Lord. That's what it says. Uh, Philippians 1.23, Paul said, I have a desire. Look, I'd rather, stay, I'd rather stay here because it's more necessary, needful to, for your benefit. But my real desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. You know, in other words, die, he's talking about. When I die, I'll be with Christ, is what he said. Luke 23.43, what did Jesus say to the dying thief on the cross? Today you shall be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me in paradise today. Not, there's not waiting going on. By the way, 
there's a couple of verses there, 2 Corinthians 12 and Revelation 2-7 that talk further about paradise, which is heaven. Uh, and then Luke 16, 19-31, Lazarus dies and is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, right? Uh, where Abraham was with the Lord. And then Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So all these things indicate to us that the souls of believers go immediately into God's presence. Secondly, the souls of... Is there any questions or comments so far? Souls of unbelievers go immediately... Everybody looks like they're tired and worn out. Sunday afternoon. I understand. Go ahead. That's a good question right there, and I thought about talking about it. We talked about soul and spirit last week, but sometimes, that's okay. I didn't bring that up. Sometimes it is said by people that soul and spirit are used interchangeably. I haven't looked into it thoroughly myself, but a lot of people think, the general ideas from theologians that know what they're talking about, yes. I wanted to look into that. I'm saying it like this because I wanted to look into it further myself seriously before I said the statement. But yes, it's generally taken that they're used interchangeably. That's right. Yeah. But I want to see it for myself with my own two eyes. I had this bad habit of wanting to know things for my own self without, because everybody else said this or that. I just want to know what the scripture actually says. So, B, the souls of unbelievers go immediately into eternal punishment. Now, the New Testament doesn't have a bunch of exacting details about every question that we could have about this subject. And I've heard people say all kinds of strange things, but it tells us enough to know what the fate of unbelievers is. And we'll always have questions about this that no one can answer, but we're going to just touch on this. People do not have a second chance after they're saved, after they, after they die to be saved. No second chance. That's right, that's right. They go immediately to Hades. Go to Luke 16, 22. Luke 16, 22. These things are difficult for us to understand. Um, you know, this is what the scripture says. We will quit on this uh, section right here. Luke 16, 22 through uh, 28 says, uh, Now the poor man died and was buried. You have the rich man and Lazarus, right? The poor man Lazarus died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, opposite place. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Said Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, Lazarus his bad things. But now he's being comforted here. You're in agony. Besides all this, there's a great gulf fixed, chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from you to, to, to you will not be able None may cross over from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, that you send them to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that they may warn them. So they won't come to this place of torment. And so this has been called the intermediate state. Why is it called the intermediate state? Why would people say that? Is that a scriptural term? Is it scriptural to say Hades is an intermediate state? And why would you say that? Okay. Okay, that's the word Hades there, but there is another place spoken of in the Bible that says something about Hades and the lake of fire. Right, well, true, yeah. And by the way, let me point out this. The person here is conscious of what's going on. He's in torment. He's, he has memory. He's memory because he says, hey, I got brothers that, you know. But look at Revelation 20. We'll quit in a minute. See, there's the, there's the reasoning right there, and, and, I, and I get that. Look at Revelation 20. I got so many bulletins, and I got more bulletins in my Bible than I have a Bible in the world. I'm a bulletin collector. Revelation 20, verse 11. And this answers that question. Then I saw a great white throne, and he, he, him who sat upon it, from uh, the, whose presence earth and heaven fled away, no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. 
The dead were judged from the things which were written in the book, books according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and here it is. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were what? Thrown into the lake of fire. So that's this is the second death, the lake of fire. So you see that Hades is like intermediate state. Place of torment, yes. Nonetheless, place of torment immediately when a person dies, but then ultimately thrown into the lake of fire, okay? That's how it works. That's why we say this. Is that is that is that torment temporary or eternal? Yep. Right. And you see the other verse in the Bible, like Matthew twenty-five forty-one. It's called an eternal fire. And other places, Revelation fourteen nine eleven spoke, speaks of the smoke of their torment going in forever. Second Thessalonians two nine. Those who don't know God are going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction. We talked about that already. Away from the presence of the Lord, away from His presence. So it makes it clear in the Bible that these are the case. These are the, or truth, uh, truth about you know where people are going to go when they die and where they're not going to go, and all these things: reincarnation, purgatory, annihilationism. All this stuff is not biblical at all. All right. Any final words? We're going to pick up with what about uh, what about believers, in the Old Testament believers next week. But uh, anybody else? This is your chance for your 15 minutes of fame. Actually, your 11 minutes of fame. Okay, you blew it.